We're in Revelation chapter 9 tonight. Revelation chapter 9. And this is a continuation of the seven trumpets that are sounding. That's the explanation of the judgments that are to come. I believe that that chapter 9 is perhaps the most difficult chapter in this book. And uh, I'm going to do my very best to try to uh, go slow and be clear and double back and explain one or two times to try to make sure uh, that I'm doing my very best to clearly uh, deal with some of these difficult images. If you remember in chapter 8, we saw the first four trumpets sound. And in each of those trumpets, we read one-third of some portion of the earth being destroyed. And so we are reading about partial judgments upon a particular nation that has not been explicitly shown to us yet, though I believe now in chapter 9 the object of God's wrath will be unavoidable and we will see uh, who God is talking about. And at the end of chapter 8, we saw in verse 13, after these partial judgments, verse 13 told us, if you thought those things were bad, the next three are only going to be worse. If you thought these first four trumpets were awful in their judgments and in their doom, the things that we are going to read now are going to be far worse. And so that's what we're going to look at now. Uh, let's read the first 12 verses of chapter 9, and this will be the fifth trumpet. Chapter 9 of Revelation. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Pretty graphic, 
pretty doom and gloom and quite honestly pretty crazy, right? And a lot of interesting images here coming out of the book of Revelation. The first two verses give us this imagery of a fallen star. And so immediately we want to know, well, who is this fallen star? What are what are we talking about here? This fallen star is from heaven. It goes to the earth. And notice that the fallen star is described as a he. And it says there that he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit or the shaft of the abyss, depending upon your translation. Uh, what is important to observe is, again, this imagery is not unusual to the Scriptures. This is an image of a ruler or a king who is either losing his power to some degree or losing that power completely. And let me show you a couple of places where we see that. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, where we have the prophecy of Isaiah, where we're told, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And when you back to verse 4 of Isaiah 14, you will notice that Isaiah is prophesying against the king of Babylon. And so he's telling them, uh, you are like this star that has fallen. You were great in power and might, O king of Babylon, but now your power has been brought low. It has been cut in pieces. Similarly, Jesus talked similarly when he talked about the Satan. When you had the 72 who were sent out and they go and they are able to possess power over demons and cast them out, you see Jesus then, His response to their amazement at the apostles or the disciples' ability to do this, that the uh, that Jesus says, notice the 72 say, Lord, even demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Luke 10. Verse 17 and 18. Same picture is that the idea is that Satan's power is being limited. Here he had great power, but now the disciples are able to go out and cast out demons. And the reflective imagery of that is Satan's loss of power. He's fallen from heaven like lightning. And so that's really the idea. That's the picture that's involved. In fact, later on in Revelation chapter 12, we'll see this uh, in a few weeks in verses 7 through 9 we'll see the same picture of the dragon as well as his angels being cast from heaven. Well, the imagery is the same. Their power has been limited. There is a loss of power. There is a loss of authority that is being shown here. And so that's what we are observing in these first two verses is that whoever this fallen star is, it is simply referring to some power, some ruler, some king who has lost his authority or power to some degree. And so that's why we see him falling like like this from heaven to the earth. The second thing that is interesting about these first two verses is that you have this imagery of an abyss and the shaft is opened up and all of a sudden there is all this smoke that rises out of it. And the smoke comes out and it darkens the sun and it pollutes the air. And so here is another curious imagery. And smoke also is used throughout the Scriptures. And it is a description of judgment. Notice it here. When the sun is darkening, where the smoke is darkening, the sun, 
we've, I think, over time through our studies of the prophets as well as the study of Revelation, what are we seeing? This is trouble for a nation. Judgment is befalling a nation to have the sun being darkened. And so here is a picture of doom and gloom described for a nation. And so it is God's judgment being shown against a particular power. Probably one of the most famous of of those images is over with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19 where you see the same picture of the smoke rising up. Well, why talk about that? Why are you discussing the smoke? Is it just the, the gory details of the judgment? No, it's trying to show that this is God's judgment. God is bringing this act against these wicked people. And so the same imagery is being brought out here in these first two verses. Is that this is an act that God is bringing about a judgment, though we are seeing an alternative tool being used, this fallen star. Now, we would like to know who is this fallen star. In an interesting method, the writer doesn't tell us until verse 11. And so we'll save that for verse 11. He instead wants to spend time talking about what the fallen star does. And he tells us that what this fallen star then accomplishes in verses 3 through 6 is unleashing these locusts. And we go, all right, well, what is all that about? Well, notice the description that is given concerning what the locusts do. Verse 3, they're given power like scorpions, which is interesting. But verse 4 is perhaps the most curious. They do not harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, You know locusts pretty well. That's pretty unusual, right? The whole point of what locusts do is they destroy every green thing. They destroy the grass. They destroy the trees. They destroy the crop. And so this shows us that we're not talking about literal locusts. We should know that by now, just as much as when we read about dragons, we're going to read about beasts. These are not actual beasts and dragons that are going to walk on the earth. But they represent something. These are symbols that are being reflected to us. And so the concern for us, well, what do these locusts represent? Why is this being shown to us? What is this locust locust event trying to tell us? The best place that we see this imagery of locusts, and it is used a few times in the Old Testament, is over in Joel chapter 2. If you'll keep your finger in Revelation, go over to the prophecy of Joel. He's about midway through the Scriptures there. Joel chapter 2, and read with me the picture. And while you're turning to Joel 2, let me tell you a little bit of the scene. In the first chapter, it appears that there was a literal locust invasion that took place against Judah. And so they are suffering because of that. And you have in chapter 1 a statement of they wiped out everything. They took everything that was green. They took the bark off the tree. There was an actual physical locust invasion. But the reason behind that was to represent what was about to happen to the nation by a world power. And that's what chapter 2 then goes on to say. Joel 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. They're like like has never been before. 
nor will again be after them through all the generations. Notice he's talking about there's this great people that is going to come along. Verse 3, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of the flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. It's an interesting parallel because notice the locust imagery is in verse 3. Before them is the Garden of Eden. Behind them is a desolate wilderness. They've come through and they destroy everything. But he's applying this image to a powerful army. Verse 4, their appearances are like war horses that are coming to destroy. Verse 5, the rumbling of chariots. But notice the imagery of the locust as they leap on the tops of the mountains. And so you have this locust imagery imagery carrying on, while at the same time saying, but they're coming with war horses and chariots. And so the idea was simply this, just as the physical locust came in and destroyed everything and nothing was left, so Babylon, the nation, is going to come along to Judah and they're going to destroy everything and there's not going to be anything left. And it makes sense to use the locust parallel. And that's what the book of Joel is doing. So when we come back to Revelation 9, I want you to see that that's the symbolism. When you describe that there are locusts that are going to come and he specifically tells us they're not going to harm the grass, they're not going to harm the trees, or anything like that, then you are being told... There is a foreign army, a world power, that is going to come and it's going to destroy. And that's what this symbol is drawing out because that's how it was used with the prophets before. We'll spend more time about the locusts and identifying their activities more as we go through these verses. But that is our first takeaway of the symbol as he's talking about a nation that is coming to destroy And that's why the end of verse 4 says, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Not talking about physical uh, safety, but as we saw in Revelation chapter 6, a description of their spiritual protection because they've been sealed. Verse 6 is interesting. Well, actually, let's do verse 5. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Five months is a really curious time frame that doesn't have a lot of particular symbolism to it. Five is not a popular one. We have seen threes and sevens and 144,000s and twelve, and we, we see those kind of images. Five, not so much. What is curious is that five months has a couple of relevant points to locusts in general. First is that that is the actual lifespan of locusts, which, point of curiosity, I don't know if that's the intention, but I think that we have to bear that in mind. The second thing also interesting is that's usually how long the season would last when the locusts would come in. It would be somewhat similar to saying that a hurricane would destroy Florida for six months. Well, that's our window of time of when a hurricane will come. Not the other six months, this particular six months, the summertime. Same thing with this is that the locusts would come during a dry season. 
In putting those images together, I think the symbolism is just simply saying there's not going to be a break in this devastation. This is going to be a full amount of suffering. The lifespan of the locusts is going to be how long you are going to suffer. The lifespan, this time span of the dry season, that's how long your suffering is going to be. I think that's why you would say five months. Because the five just doesn't have anything but in particular behind it to go. Now five means perfection or completeness or something of that nature. It doesn't carry that. And so I think it makes the most sense just to say five months he's saying however long this world power is there your suffering is going to be that same amount of time. It is going to be a full, complete, long amount of suffering that will be endured. Which fits verse 6. The people are going to seek death and not find it. Now that's a curiosity. We'll come back to that in a minute. But that ought to make us scratch our head for a minute. Is that people will want to die, but they'll be unable to do so. Why? What's going on here that that would be the case? Something unusual about this event is being described. But before we can get into that, he then goes and launches into the appearance, these characteristics of the locusts. Notice that they are described as a powerful, terrifying army. Notice the similarity to Joel chapter 2. He says there in verse 7 that they have are, their locusts were like horses prepared for battle. That's just like what Joel was talking about. That's exactly the same kind of prophecy. This is a powerful army that is coming against you. And so we're told that here. He goes on and says that they have um, gold crowns on their heads. And so this shows they have authority. We have seen throughout the book of Revelation gold crowns on various people's heads. We noted it particularly with the 24 elders casting their crowns before the throne. What is it symbolizing? Authority. They have authority. And so this is a world power. It has authority over the earth is the picture that is being drawn by to us here. And so we have this bringing together of this imagery to show that this is a world power is coming with its armies. It is coming to destroy. And that's in keeping with Joel chapter 2. It's also in keeping with Jeremiah 51 verse 27. Same kind of language where he talks about the horses that are coming in for war. And he calls them locusts. Same kind of picture. So, who are the locusts? Who is being described? For a number of reasons, I believe this must be describing the Roman Empire in its invasion of Judea and Jerusalem. And let me give you a number of reasons why. First of all, and we're talking about in 70 AD when the Roman army did this. First, to give the locusts gold crowns symbolizes that this is a nation that has power and authority. This isn't just squirmish city A against squirmish city B. This is somebody big. This is somebody powerful. This is somebody mighty. And we'll see that when we get to the sixth trumpet. And we're going to see that they have 200 million armies. And we're going to go, okay, what does that mean? It's going to be a powerful nation before us. Chapter 9, verse 6, when we notice the people will seek death but not find it, is quite befitting of the scenario that transpired when Rome did go against Judea and Jerusalem. As many of you know, there was about a three and a half year siege that took place. 
People were locked up in the city and the point that the Roman Empire attempted was to simply starve them to death. They were just simply waiting them out. And so we have some historical frame that would make this fairly likely. But more important, the description that is given here is that these locusts come out of the abyss. In chapter 11 and verse 7, we are going to read about this beast that comes out of the abyss. That beast in chapter 13 is identified by every single scholar. It's like this is the only thing that everybody agrees on. It's chapter 13. It's the Roman Empire. First century Roman Empire is going to rise up and it's going to destroy. I think it is fascinating to observe that it comes from the same location. And I think it is right for us to observe that the locusts, here's this picture of locusts coming out of this abyss as smoke, are the same entity as the beast that will be unleashed out of the abyss as well. Now the question would be, well, why the different descriptions? Why not call it the beast here? Why not do it the same? And the reason is just simply a difference in function. For example... Later on, we're going to see the devil called the dragon. But he's got different names here. There's a different intention. There's a different purpose in what is being drawn. There's a reason to describe them as locusts here, just like in Joel 2. The point is the utter devastation of what is about to happen to you. To visualize a world power with all of its armies coming against you. Later, he wants to use the beast imagery to tie back into Daniel chapter 7 to show this is the great power over the earth and its violence against the people of God, its worship against God but worshiping its idols and worshiping itself. It wants to use a different image to talk about the same entity. So I don't think we should be bothered by the change of image Because God does that a lot in this book. We're going to see a lot of changes of imagery, but He's talking still about the same entity, trying to emphasize a different aspect of what this entity is doing. For the moment, He wants us to see, this is a powerful nation who is going to destroy, and it will wipe out everything, just like a locust invasion would wipe out everything. And so that's the picture behind the fifth trumpet. That leaves us with verse 11. These locusts have a king over them. The angel of the abyss. And his name is Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. Those have become somewhat popular words ever since the whole Left Behind series came out. Those are exciting terms. In the Hebrew, Abaddon simply means destruction, and Apollyon simply means in the Greek, destroyer. And that's why the title of this lesson was The Destroyer. This is the thrust of this section, is to talk about who this destroyer is. He has authority over the abyss. Later on, we're going to see the dragon open the abyss, and out comes the beast. And we know the dragon refers to Satan because of chapter 12. I think that's the same picture here. Our destroyer is Satan. He is the ruler who has his power cut down, but his power is not completely destroyed. Satan is doing something here. He is unleashing these locusts to destroy. 
I think it is also interesting, this word Abaddon. The Qumran community, the guys who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have found, and there's always so much on TV about that. The Qumran community used the phrase Abaddon 15 times in their writings, and it's connected each and every time to Belial, and Belial is the name of Satan that they use, and in fact the scriptures themselves even tag on the phrase Belial in talking about Satan and the power of darkness. And so we should see Satan here. That was the term that at least the Qumran Jews used to describe Satan. They talked about Abaddon as the place of destruction, and here is Belial who is, participates in that destruction, and that was the place of his abode. And they would tie um, Abaddon and Sheol together, in fact, in some of their writings as well. Now, that's a whole pile of complicated, so let me just boil that all down as to what I'm getting at for the fifth trumpet. Okay, Satan here is called Abaddon and Apollyon. Shouldn't be bothered by that. In chapter 12, he's going to be called the dragon. Again, emphasizing a different aspect of who he is. Here he's the destroyer. In chapter 12, when we get there, we'll see why he's called the dragon. That's a whole other interesting imagery, another picture of how Satan operates. Same thing here. Roman Empire, chapter 13, is going to be called the beast. Right now it's called the locust to describe the destruction that it's going to bring about. Therefore, I believe that John is prophesying against Judah, against Judea and Jerusalem, the coming doom of the physical nation of Israel, and that this is the imagery of that. What is where I really take issue, I guess, and where I step away and disagree from what our, our brethren write is typically what I have read in the commentaries that I have is that they'll say, well, the locust just represents general sinfulness of people. Okay, but the problem is that's not how that image is used. That image is always used in the Old Testament prophets to describe a nation, a powerful nation coming to destroy it is not useful to plug in here and say, well, what this is saying is that Satan is going to tempt people and many are going to fall into iniquities and sins, and so that's why you see this imagery. The language is far too graphic. Notice, again, like the verse 9, they have breastplates of iron. This is a picture of warfare. They're on horses. This is a picture of, of warfare rushing into battle, verse 9, with the noise of many chariots. This is war imagery. This is a nation going into battle. And so if this is a nation going into battle, as it describes, well, who's the world power? Well, at the time, Rome is the world power. And that leaves us with only one conclusion, then, well, who's the object of God's wrath? It's the Jews. It's the physical nation of Israel in 70 A.D. This fits the clues that we've seen up to this point. Remember in chapter 6 and verse 8, we saw that God made a promise that there would be this method of destruction that was promised against them specifically. Chapter 6, verse 8, They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And back in Leviticus, God promised that would be the way He would destroy the nation of Israel if they disobeyed and this would be the curses against them. And then Ezekiel and Jeremiah come along and did the same thing and said, this is how you're going to die because this is what God has promised. And in Revelation 6, same imagery is used. In chapter 7, 
we saw the phrase the Great Tribulation. That phrase is used only one time outside of the book of Revelation. Matthew 24, verse 21, where Jesus is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and how not one stone would be left upon another. In chapter 8, we saw the imagery of wormwood. That was a phrase Jeremiah used against the people of Israel because of their pollution of sins. And so here to pull in the same imagery again, you've returned to your pollution. You've returned to your old ways and your sins stand against you. Revelation 9 reveals destroying locusts. That represents a world power and they're destroying somebody. When we get to Revelation 10 and 11, if we had all the time in the world, we would hang out in chapter 10 and 11 tonight, and I'd be able to show you a few more things there, but when we get to 10 and 11, I think it becomes even more clear. But I want you to see that right now, Revelation is building up who is the object of God's wrath. And now, for three chapters, now four chapters, continuing to lay the layers down of this people is deserving of God's wrath. This people is deserving of destruction. And Satan is using a moral power to bring this doom. And this is, in fact, God's divine judgment against them. This is the way God wanted it to be done. That's what's going to leave Revelation open-ended. There's so much I'd like to just talk about. i got to stay in the text. But that, that's where Revelation is going to go. It's now talk about, well, what about... Them Don't they deserve judgment? Yeah, he's going to talk about them later on and talk about what's going to happen with them. And that's a common pattern in the Old Testament prophets to say, you're going to be judged and others are going to be judged as well. The other nations also because of what they've done. So that's what the first 11 verses lay out for us is that here are these locusts, absolutely descriptions of a world power destroying. And so we are left for to put the pieces together This seems to be then prophesied the Roman Empire coming against the physical nation of Israel. Verse 12, The first woe is past. Behold, two two woes are still to come. And if you thought that was bad, we're not done yet. Time for the sixth trumpet. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates with the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of their horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons, and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, 
which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of the murders or the sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. Okay. Verse 13, sixth angel blows his trumpet. We hear a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. Verse 14 tells us, release the four angels. Remember where we saw them back in chapter 7 and verse 1. We saw at the end of chapter 6, cataclysmic judgment. The sun is darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars are falling from the sky. Lights out for the nation. But that could not happen yet. Remember why? Until the servants of God were sealed. And so chapter 7 verse 1 said, Restrain the winds until the servants of God are sealed. Now we come here to verse 14 and the statement is, Release them. It is time for those angels to unleash the winds. It is time for cataclysmic judgments to be unleashed. It is time for the nation to fall. And that's what the rest of 9, and in particular chapters 10 and 11, are going to now reveal for us. It is time for the fall of this nation. Notice the location that they come from. Verse 14, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This again clues us in yet one more time that we are talking about Judah, Judea, and Jerusalem because that was the direction that almost every attack that Jerusalem and Judea had was from there. In 722 B.C., the northern nation Samaria, also called Israel, is destroyed by Assyria. Assyria comes from the Euphrates area, comes and wipes them out. In 606, 597 and 586, Babylon comes from the Euphrates area and destroys Judea and Jerusalem. That is the imagery of when a nation is at the Euphrates... They're coming for you. It means it is your doom. And so that is the idea yet again. As a world power, the Roman Empire is coming against Israel. Again, we don't look at it and go, now Rome is over to the west, and so they wouldn't ever cross the Euphrates. You're supposed to catch the symbolism. The symbolism is when Jerusalem was wiped out, It was from a world power. And that world power always came from the Euphrates. And so when I say a world power is coming from the Euphrates, here's the equation. You're done. It's over. This is not Egypt coming against you that you might survive for a time. It's over. And that's why it says release the winds, release the four angels. Because what chapter 6 showed us was that the doom was coming. It was their annihilation. The nation was lights out once the servants of God were sealed. Verse 16. Well, verse 15. Notice they've been prepared for this, this day and hour and month and year has all been prepared. Somewhat similar to what Jesus said, I think, but I won't get into that, but I think that's very similar to Matthew 24. Verse 16. The number of the mounted troops. This is awesome. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. That is two. Hundred million. Now this is where the futurists get very funny. Now, how do you fit two hundred million people in the area of Armageddon that we'll read about later on? And so they get all trying to sort all this out, friend. None of the numbers are literal. We have to remember that. One hundred forty-four thousand wasn't literal. Ten's not literal, and the two hundred million is not literal. I think the message is pretty easy especially in the first century. 
A world power is coming against you, riding on horses and chariots that number 200 million. Message? You lose. You're not going to win. That's what that means. 200 million, we're done. You're not going to survive this. It is over. This again fits chapter 6. It's lights out. It's done. Story over. Game over. You are not going to survive this. That's why you use a number so big like that. It's not to sit there and try to figure out the logistics of how 200 million people might be able to fit in the valley of Jezreel. What you're trying to do is show if that's a, that's a big, big number. That's a big number in our standards today in warfare. Back then, you went to battle with a few hundred thousand. You were in really good shape. 200 million. I don't care how big your army is, you're losing. And that's the symbolism of verse 16. And that's why verse 17 says, And here's what I saw, the horses. And he says, And I saw who rode on them. And look at the fearful picture that is drawn up here with lion's heads and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And they're killing mankind. A third is being killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. They have tails like serpents and they are destroyed and they are wounded. It's a picture of your doom and gloom. It is over. And so it is intending to draw out terrifying images. It lights out for the nation. Your time is done. Now it's come. Verses 20 and 21 are really the saddest parts of the story. No one repents. Remember that we observe that chapters 8 and 9, the point is to get the people to repent. God does not immediately destroy the nation and say, you're sin, you're done. The intention behind these partial judgments that we read about in the first four seals of chapter 6, the first four trumpets of chapter 8, is to bring the people to repentance. Turn back to God. They don't. And as we observed back in chapter 6, we'll remind ourselves here one more time, remember that the repentance was not only hoping to come from those who were the object of God's wrath. In fact, probably not. Because as we're reading, it's too late for them. But the intention is to get the nations to observe, to see the power of God and repent. I would speculate the intention is that If God will destroy His covenant people, the physical nation of Israel, what will He do to all the other world nations and powers? They will most certainly be judged as well. If the physical nation was not spared, no nation will be spared. God is an equal opportunity dealer of sins. He deals with sins with wrath. And that's what the Old Testament showed us. I showed you these passages in chapter 6. I'll show them to you one more time. In Isaiah 34, just look at the very end because my voice is about God. Verse 5, the object of God's wrath is upon Edom. Judgment upon Edom. But look back at verse 1 at the very top. Who's supposed to hear? The nations. Edom is toast. Who's supposed to pay attention? The nations. They're supposed to watch, learn, repent before it's too late. Isaiah 2, same thing. Jerusalem is predicted as being destroyed. It is all mankind 
who's supposed to watch and learn. Three conclusions, I think. I think it's three that I want to give you for tonight. One, you can't help but see God's mercy revealed. He delayed the judgments all this time. We sometimes read the book of Revelation and go, you know, this would have been a lot easier if chapter 6 would have just said, locust, boom, done. (laughs) But four chapters, chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, going on and on and on about the judgments and how it's going to happen, predicting how it's going to come, and then only harming a third or a fourth. Why? Because God is merciful. He wants people to repent. He wants to give time for His creation to come back. He wants to redeem His people. This is a great picture of what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, that God is long-suffering and patient and does not want any to perish. If God was a wrathful barbecue you on the spot God, we would shorten this book up real tight and we'd just be like, they're doomed, they're sinned, they're done. And we thank God that He is a merciful, gracious God who gives us time to repent, who gives us time to turn away from our sins. But God's wrath is also revealed. That's the other part of that coin. God is showing mercy and withholding wrath, not wanting any to perish, but He cannot ignore our sins forever. At some point, justice and judgment must flow. And that's what chapter 9 just said. At some point, it has to come. And the locusts are unleashed, and it just lights out for the nation, because God will not tolerate their sins any longer. Which reminds us that we need to repent before it's too late. We should not presume upon God's mercy to think that we have all the time in the world to live how we want to live, and then think that it's going to be okay with God. Turn to God before it's too late. Turn to Him and serve Him fully because the day of wrath, the day of judgment is coming. Turn to Him and obey Him. Pull your songbooks out.